Welcome back to the Code Adam podcast. My name is Julia, and today's interview is with Thomas Robert Stacy. Thomas attended a number of troubled teen programs between February of 2011 to October of 2011. Thank you so much, Thomas, for being our guest today. Could you please describe your first experience with the troubled teen industry? So my parents and I were having um, difficulties at home. I came from a relatively dysfunctional family for many reasons that aren't particularly relevant. I was in a, uh, a halfway house state run when I was told that I was going to be going to the Ironwood program for six to nine months. To me, it was described as a boarding school. It was described as an opportunity to go meet new people, to grow, have new experiences, make friends. The way it was, the way it was phrased to me, I was actually looking forward to it. Then things started to become a little bit fishy. First of all, they wanted to pick me up. They have these guys, the transport guys. They wanted to get me at 2 a.m. to drive me up to Maine. 2 a.m. I figure, why would they want me to be picked up at 2 a.m.? Well, I guess they're trying to get the jump on people who don't know they're coming. Sitting next to these two burly muscular dudes, and I was completely compliant. I knew I was going. You know, I tossed my own bags in the back, and I was like, let's go. It's ridiculous. Driving up to Ironwood, expecting to go into this boarding school environment, instead reaching Ironwood itself, it sent, it sent a shock through my body. They had us stripped down, searched us, searched all our bags, took our shoelaces, took our belts because we had to spend 48 hours on what they called reflection, but what is analogous to solitary confinement in other situations. Um, Dressed in bright orange attire so that we could always be tracked and put in a gazebo for 48 hours just to sit. Those 48 hours might have been among the worst hours of my life. I had panic attacks. I had no idea where I was, totally cut off from society. I was, it it, it felt like I was, at one point I actually threw up. I was so sick to my stomach because of these panic attacks. Jesus. And what were the staff like um, during these panic attacks? Did they show any empathy towards you? Absolutely not. Anytime I would ask them like, you know, any questions i had um casey and gordon were the two staff members that were on my reflection period i would ask them you know well how long does it usually take to get through this program can you tell me a little bit more about it can you tell me you know what do we do all day what do you know how does it work and they would say we can't answer that they couldn't answer anything about what i was about to get into it was less being there and seeing where I was that was inducing all of this panic, but the fact that I realized I didn't know what I was stepping into. And to be honest, I was like, I was, I was right to be worried because what came next was not fun. Yeah, I remember feeling so- really terrified and just kind of shutting down. Like, I didn't want them to know how scared I was. 
So I kind of just kind of just shut down and went quiet and tried really hard not to cry and just just went really, really within myself as best I could because I just remember like that you remember that feeling of just being in a gazebo for the first time and not knowing why you're there like what tomorrow is going to be or who these people are and you're just hoping like that someone's going to step up to you and like tell you everything's going to be okay but like nobody really does that when you're there and it's like for a kid to be put in a situation like that a panic attack is and I was surprised that I wasn't in a full panic at that point like my trauma response at that moment was to kind of just shut down and not let them see that you were vulnerable to like because i didn't know what they were going to do you know we none of us it was yeah it was terrifying but over those 48 hours i i came to realize one thing i had gotten myself into something that i was not prepared for and if i was going to get out of there because you know you're on reflection you're outside in the middle of the courtyard I saw some people being non-compliant and I watched as they tackled, um, I'm sorry, I forget the girl's name, but she was like yelling and screaming and they tackled her ass to the ground and dragged her into the bunk room, handcuffed her to the bed and just let her sit there screaming. And that made me realize the way to get out of here is to play their game. The only way to survive that place was to play by their rules, was to make them think that you were doing what they needed you to do or that what they wanted you to do. Yeah. So for 48 hours, I prepared myself to pretty much go into an alter identity for the next six to nine months of my life to become somebody different than I was on the outside in order to survive and to get discharged from this program in a timely manner. I think a lot of kids kind of realize, you know, at certain points in the program that it's not about growth. It's about compliance and control. And there does become a point in the program, like programs like these where you are, you know, caught in a situation where you have to just play the game or you're not going to survive it. You're going to just be stuck in a worse situation because you're now. Yeah. Yeah. And survival. I'd like to point out here, right. This was back when I was 14 years old. I had had gone to Ironwood for, you know, dysfunction in my family and because I had smoked a little bit of pot. When I got out of Ironwood, my entire perspective on society had been reshapen. I hit the ground running. I did. I began using all the drugs. I became an opiate addict within six months of getting out of Ironwood. Had never touched them before. I I used stimulants. I drank when I could a little bit. I became addicted to opiates. I had to go to rehab for opiates. I've been to rehabs. I've been to seven different rehabs, all following Ironwood. Adult rehabs, voluntary admission rehabs that are actually about growth. I want to make it clear that I'm not trashing institutions in general, but institutions like Ironwood have absolutely no value to society. Yeah, I agree with that statement 100%. Um, and it's a shame that, like, for you, your experience was it, it made you more, you know, curious in, for hard drugs. And I hear that story a lot. There's yep. a couple girls who, you know, graduated in my program who never touched anything before they went to Ironwood. And when they got out, they did hit the ground running, like you said, and started using, uh, whether that be heroin or anything, really. 
it was there's yep. a lot of situations where that's the story and it's because these programs like ironwood um they're not helping they're doing more damage than they are helping you almost become indoctrinated into that mindset mm-hmm. so i was curious what your relationship what the staff was when you were there the staff okay so the way i look at the staff there's four categories of staff. There are those who are just there for a job, right? Those who didn't really care, you know, it's a paycheck. They go along with the rules. They never really get close to anybody. You know the ones I'm talking about. Uh, you know, just kind of not too judgmental, not too harsh, not too lenient. Literally just buy the books, needed money. Understandable. And there's category two. Those who took advantage of us knowingly thinking they were doing the right thing to help. So do you remember uh, Ron Ann? Yep, I know Ron Ann. Brutal woman. I mean, came down with a with a, like a like a ton of bricks. She would not let anybody mess with anybody. One morning I was at the breakfast table and I cracked my neck and she called me out on it because, you know, my neck was Crack my neck. She's like, that's threatening. That's threatening. You don't do that. But at least with her, it can be said, she also worked with residents on certain projects like training the dogs. I remember she had a dog, CJ. She was training him to run food up. So at least that group of people could be said to want to see people succeed, but do it with, you know, a little bit of force. The third category of individuals were the staff that were there, took advantage of us, and were doing so knowingly and just did not care. The most significant example I can think of for this category would be Jess. People like that, having studied psychology, people like that have this need to exercise power over other individuals to to increase their sense of self-worth. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost the same as using a drug, you know, having power over individuals, being able to punish them when you want. People become power hungry. She, she never yelled. She never got violent. But because she was in control, she would say it very calmly, but she would screw you for the littlest thing. I was in the kitchen cleaning dishes, right? And kitchen duty took a long time. Three hours of cleaning dishes, me and Andrew. And I said one thing to uh, Andrew. Right behind my back, asked him to pass me like one of the dishes. And she looked at me, she's like, I couldn't hear that. That's a demerit. Demerit's an hour of work impact. Jesus. I was like, I turned around, I was like, I'm sorry. All I was asking him to do was pass something. If you wanted to hear it, you should have been closer to the window into the kitchen. She said, Are you arguing with me? Are you being non compliant? Instead of erupting and exploding like a lot of people would have me my strategy at ironwood was play their game beat them and just get through it you know mm-hmm. it's the fastest way so i said no and i took my punishment but it's like who does that to children children people who are in developmental stages of their life that's that's what needs to be underlined here is that the clientele at ironwood are in the developmental stages of their life. The things that happen to them are going to impact them for the rest of their life. They are going to set the scene. They're going to prime them to, ha- to have that kind of fear, that kind of distrust against the system automatically. 
I almost didn't go to my first real rehab because I was so convinced it was going to be Ironwood. It was going to be like Ironwood. I, I, I refused to even let myself be admitted there until finally one day I overdosed and I was taken there by, uh, by medical staff. And I arrived at the rehab and they gave me a bed and they gave me like well-cooked food, as much food as I wanted. There was a television and there was, you know, a bunch of other people and we were allowed to talk about anything we wanted. Nobody was censoring us. And I realized like, oh my God, this is what this is supposed to be like. Because as I'm sure other people have described at Ironwood, when you first get there, you're sleeping on a wooden plank with no pillow in a cabin. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure this has been discussed in previous episodes, but I'm just go over it real quick, just because it's relevant. You sleep on these wooden planks with no pillows. You actually get punished if you try to use a sweatshirt as a pillow. You're made to speak only in front of staff, right? If you're out of staff earshot and you say something, that's grounds for punishment immediately. So they effectively violated our right to free speech. That's, there is no other way to slice it. Yep. That's what they did. So, and then the fourth category of staff... Those were actually there to try to help because there were amongst the institution a couple of individuals who really were there because they wanted to help these kids out. A couple of them that I can name in particular was uh, Paul. Paul was always there. Paul, you could come to him. You could talk to him about anything. I spent hours one day doing laundry with Paul, just joking around with him, having fun. He didn't make me feel uncomfortable. He didn't make me feel like I needed to mind every word that came out of my mouth, lest I be punished. Yeah. It, it was like being it was like being treated like a human being again. And at the end of that day, after doing laundry, which I had done laundry just so I could spend some time with him, because you know. He gave me he gave me a reward for it, a merit, which you know merits are almost unheard of at Ironwood. Yeah, Paul was the merit man. I feel like a lot of the merits I received were from Paul. And uh, who's another one? Mike. Did you ever run into him? I loved Mike. He was the he was the epitome of a hard ass. But the what I loved about him, he valued hard work. He valued dedication. Do you know Mike A never once gave out a demerit or a work impact or anything in his tenure at Ironwood? I asked I asked him once, like, Mike, you know, you yell at us all the time. You're, you're pretty hard on us. You make us do some hard work. Um, but I never see you giving demerits or work impact or putting people on reflection. You know, I don't believe in all that bullshit. I believe that with hard work, you can conquer anything. I'll never forget him like yelling at us to clean our fingernails. He would like just walk into the girls' bunk and be like, clean the underneath the fingernails. Put your hair up. We'd be like, what the heck? Who is this man? <laughs> it's like so funny. Oh though. my god. But he was he was he was trying to instill values in us, yeah. right? Values of hard work, values of, you know, honest, hard labor. But not doing it through threatening us with punishment of more forced labor. He, he would, and as he was trying, as he was saying these things to us, he was right alongside us doing the work with us. That's yeah. what you can call a role model. Yeah, I always, always would say that when I was at Ironwood was if you're trying to be a role model, and I want any staff who is in any program ever to listen to this, is if you are going to be a role model, you do it with us. You don't tell us to do it and then watch us do it yep. and complain about the way we're doing it. You fucking do it with us. Show us how to do it lead by example or don't or don't fucking work there and don't try to like teach kids how to be anything because it's not yep. 
that's you're not teaching anyone anything if you're not going to lead by example, um, especially when you're teaching kids anything. So, unfortunately, you know, it's the rest. It's the way the program is structured that led to a lot of the problems. At what point in your program did you decide that you wanted to comply with the rules so that you could move forward? Remember, I was about having those panic attacks when I was uh, on reflection. I immediately knew that I was here. I mean. You're in the middle of barren nowhere. There's nowhere to run. If you run, it, even if you make, even if you run and you make it, you're probably gonna freeze to death. I sat down, and once the panic attack subsided, I realized the best thing I can do is put on this disguise of the absolute perfect child. You know, feign, feign perfection. They told me when I got there, there was only one kid who had ever gone through the program without losing their color due to punishment. I was the second. That was my strategy. I knew that the only way to get through it was to just just to just play the game. Yeah. Do their dance. And yeah, I was just thinking that because honestly, like every single person I've interviewed up till now, it's been uh, February 2011 to October 2014 and I'm like wow you're you were able to be in and out within a year like that's unheard of really in a lot of these programs because they just find ways to send you down for like the the stupidest shit and it takes so much to have the like will to comply and know the game and play the game and get out and I know See, so many I was kids always, <laughs> I was always a great manipulator that was what led to part of the problems in my family that led me being brought to Ironwood. I, I'm a great chess player. I know how systems work. And I knew that if I wanted to get out of there, I had to play them to make them think that I had changed. And I went through, and up until my graduation date, they probably thought I was going to go out there and be fantastic and take the world by storm and be clean and be super respectful and not even three weeks after I got out of Ironwood, I used heroin for the first time. What was going through your brain like when you decided that that's what you wanted to, what did you do after Ironwood? I become such a shell of a person because imagine having to, you know, pretend to be somebody else to not be able to express yourself yeah. for nine months when you're 14. Again, during those formative years, you can't express yourself. You can't express your personality. You, you're not allowed to have a personality at Ironwood. You're not allowed to sing. You're not allowed to talk about a whole plethora of things. You are a cog in a machine. It, it it hollowed me out inside. And the only thing that kept me going was the idea that, well, I hear all these things about drugs and you know alcohol make people feel great. If this is, you know, how I'm wasting nine months of my life, I'm going to hit the ground running when I get out. So I played it and I played the part to a T. I... <laughs> I would have made a wonderful covert operative, I'll tell you the truth, because it had to be done. Because had I, had I, what, tried to fight against them, we had no basis, we had no basis to rebel. We were all under A. Even if we sent complaints to the Department of, you know, whatever in Maine, which we couldn't do, by the way, because they wouldn't give us paper and we were cut off from communication at all, so there was no one to complain to, would they have listened? We're juveniles. Yeah, they had what, what was it called? The paper that they had, um, grievance forms, I believe. Grievance forms, But Jesus yep. Christ, they would barely, they, I don't think I remember, like, if you asked for one, you might get one. It wasn't like you would get one every time. Yep. It was, like, based on what, you know, if the staff liked you and thought that it was something they could get away with, they would give you one. And they don't, yeah, and they don't do anything with them. And you know what's 
their treatment team. Yeah, you're a troubled team, so. Now, now I've got for biobehavioral science, which largely incorporates, if you imagine a trifecta of psychology, biology, and sociology, that's what I studied. All of those counselors, they were therapists. They didn't hold doctorists. They, they, they weren't, they didn't have masters in psychology. They didn't have doctorates in psychiatry. They were just LPCs, licensed practitioning counselors. They probably had an undergraduate education. That was it. And a, and a certification to go along with it. And even then, we saw them once a week for an hour. Once. How is that supposed to be therapeutic? How is that supposed to be restorative? Because the schedule of Ironwood's day wasn't, you know, go to groups to learn about self-help. Mm. In fact, and I distinctly remember this. I have... I have a very, uh, very good memory. There were two therapy groups held for the residents per week. DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, and Addictions Therapy, right? One was held on Tuesday by one of the therapists. One was held on Thursday by one of the therapists. And I say therapists very loosely. We need to call them counselors because they have no legitimate standing as therapists. Yeah. If you look into their credentials. An hour with both of them talking about nonsense, pretty much. Yeah. And then an hour with your individual counselor every week. That's three hours of getting actual counseling, not even not even therapy, counseling out of an entire week, which is abhorrent. What? What's going on with the rest of the week? We're doing labor. We're doing and. Serving punishments <laughs> the rest of the week is just yeah. dictated. They take us they take us to school. Do you know I took those pamphlets they gave us, those self education pamphlets. I had them finished in a week and a half. They weren't teaching us anything. There was no teacher. It was sit down, here's some remedial problems to solve, and we'll say you were educated. We were put into a, a position where we were essentially forced labor for months on end being given credit for being in school it's like it's like a it's like a, a it's it's a brainwashing program it's a it's a at least that's what it's meant to be yeah and that that was the only thought that kept me going through all of it the only reason i didn't succumb to actually believing in all of this nonsense was because i knew back then i knew how ludicrous it was i you know most of us did we weren't fools. We knew there was something very, very wrong with where we were at. The problem is we had nothing to do. We had, there was nothing we could do except play along with their game and, you know, try to get through it. The lasting implications of that, though, because when you get out, because everybody does eventually get out. For me, it was I got in, and this is how deeply it scarred me. The dates are literally burned into my brain. February 21st of 2011 to October 28th of 2011. That was my stay. The problems, I was, I was the perfect, the perfect resident there. I got like one demerit, never got, never lost a color, didn't get put on reflection, never had any problems, literally. It, it was, and that was difficult. But, uh, you know, I played the system because I knew that was what I had to do to get out. When I got out, the real impact of what Ironwood had done had begun. I felt so empty inside. I felt so dissociated from the real world. 
because I had been I had been living a I don't want to say a double life, but I had been living a life that wasn't really me for nine months. I had adopted a new persona that made the real me feel like it had been emptied out. And so I went and I filled that with with chemicals, with drugs, with stimulants, opiates, anything that I could use to feel again. Do you think that had you never been sent to Ironwood, you would have never touched opiates or heroin? Or I can't say for certain whether or not that would have happened, simply because you never know if it would have. Mm-hmm. What I will say is, throughout the timeline of my story, I can identify I was never interested in any of those harder drugs until Ironwood itself. Me, myself, I was definitely not interested in drugs until I kind of got out of Ironwood as well. I didn't actually know what weed was. I thought, you know, my parents were very much like, weed is heroin, don't do it. So I was kind of like, (laughs) I was kind of like on that page with what marijuana was for a long time. Um, When I did try it, I was just like, wow, like, I didn't realize like how much anxiety and like stress I was constantly it like in a state of stress I was constantly in until I kind of like started smoking weed and being like whoa like I don't think people really go through this amount of stress daily because they haven't experienced something like you know ironwood I still I still have nightmares about ironwood don't get me wrong but I want to move a little bit towards what happened after ironwood to try to show why Ironwood itself as a program should no longer be. Because we can, we can speak all day about how and what they did to us and that it's not right. But if there's no real solution out there, what's the point? Mm-hmm. So I'm 18 years old. I'm using, God, when I say copious amounts of oxycodone per day, like enough that could probably kill four or five opiate intolerant people per day. And um, I have an event involving the police. They come in, they uh, they raid my house. Somebody said that I was dealing drugs. I have never dealt drugs before. I was scapegoated because somebody wanted to get time off their sentence. But long story short, they found out. And um, throughout the process, I was offered the opportunity to go to a rehab. Now, at this point, I'm 18. The o- the only experience I have of rehab is Ironwood, where I was told I'm going to a boarding school where I'm going to meet people and have fun and play games and and do it. And instead, I'm raking dirt, chopping wood, you know, shoveling manure as punishment. So I said, hell no. I said I resisted the help that I genuinely needed to get off of the things that Ironwood had led me to because I expected that that's what it would be like. Finally, through a series of events, I did eventually end up getting into a private rehab and agreeing to go. It was that or serve jail. I said, you know what? And and one thing I'm going to say right now, and people can agree or disagree with this, people often say Ironwood, people compare Ironwood to jail. Oh my God, that's horrible. No, 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 no. Ironwood is comparable. To, I've been to jail and I've been to Ironwood. Guess which one I'd pick? Jail. I've never been to prison. I'm not necessarily sure about prison, but county jail? Yeah. That is saying a lot. That That is saying a lot. County jail, you're allowed to talk about whatever you want. You're allowed to fraternize with other people on the block. County jail, you're allowed to take a shower whenever you want. It's not limited to five minutes. 
county jail. There's an exercise room. You can go and exercise whenever you want. There's a television. You can go hang out. You get three meals a day. You can order commissary. You can order snacks. So I can't speak on prison, but when people say, you know, oh, stop complaining, it could be jail, I negate that statement. So I get to the retreat, which is the rehab that I ended up going to for my heroin addiction problem. I walk in and the place is like a resort. It's in uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania. I forget the name of the town. I walk in. There's this gorgeous cafeteria. Huge, huge alcove. They've got a big serving plate. They've got drink dispensers. They've got bagels. They've got cereals. They've got... It, it, it was like it was like a kitchen wonderland. I looked. I was like, wait, what? Now, like, here, let's take you down to admissions. Admissions... There was a little stone fountain with water trickling down. It was one of the most serene places I had ever been, right? Now, I had been expecting another iron, but no, this was now, I was I was no longer in the realm of teen reform programs. I was now in the realm of adult rehab programs who had a legitimate problem. They took me in, they asked me questions, they counseled me, they asked how did this happen, they listened. They agreed with a lot of what I had to say. They empathized. They said, okay, no problem. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to set you up with a bed, and uh, you're going to join up with our groups tomorrow because you've already detoxed off of whatever you're on because I could spend a couple of days in jail before that. I said, okay, I look forward to it. Next day comes around. I go in. I'm in a guy called John H.'s um, small group. This rehab had about 60 people in it. At this place, you know, instead of spending our days doing manual labor, which, you know, pointless manual labor just to, to take time away and to, to put us in our place. We would go to groups, to psychoeducation groups, where we would learn about symptoms of depression. We would learn about symptoms of anxiety. We would learn about why people become habituated to drugs. We would learn about the effects of drugs. We would talk about similar shared experiences we had had and how they had been so negative. All of the stuff that was taboo to talk about at Ironwood that needed to be talked about in the first place. Everything that had been put on mute, everything that we had been told to, they, they almost tried to reprogram us, yeah. Ironwood. They managed to do it to a lot of kids. I mean, I remember I going home did. and feeling reprogrammed. I don't know if, if you caught me, you know, a couple months out of Ironwood. This is not the Julia you would have been talking to right now. It's crazy I, it that you got- It took me a while to- it took me a while to come back to my normal self, too. I'm glad you got the help you needed because it sounds like it was such a drastic difference between um, Ironwood and that program. And I think that a lot of kids who've been through you know, treatment programs like Ironwood really do need to understand that help is still out there. There is yeah. a lot of people who are like not Ironwood and programs that are not Ironwood and people who are going to empathize and listen to you and help you get through what you really need to process and whatever you do need uh, to get to move forward with your life because you know there isn't only going to be ironwoods out there that have treatment centers and and help right. their therapists for you yeah i was able to sit in my counselor's office bullshit his name was john h he used to tell me you know what my problem was for five years i used to shoot speed balls right to the side of my neck I was like holy shit this is this is our this is our therapist who this guy actually has a therapy degree you know not only does he know what it's like, but he's not sugarcoating it. We're addressing the raw issue. How else are you supposed to actually, you know, 
process it. We're talking to people who share these same issues uncensored. So we're all talking about our experiences and we're realizing that we're not alone. That in and of itself is a huge part of recovery, knowing that you're not alone. And Ironwood made you feel more alone than ever. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I actually went back to mentor at that place. But the reason I went back to mentor was to get out and to tell these people. I only did it for two days. I went in because as a red, you have the permission to talk to people outside of staff earshot. And I came in and I just told them, listen, guys, remember, this is temporary. You know, don't take all of this to heart. You are not. I came in to remind them that they're not bad people. They don't deserve what they're going through. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, this is ludicrous from all standpoints. I went in to try to reinforce to them the fact that they weren't what they were being made out to be. And that, you know, I never wanted to step foot in that place again. But I felt just like tonight when I never really wanted to talk about it again. I feel it a moral obligation to get this information out there about this place. Yeah, I feel that as well. Um, I actually went back to Mentor three times, and each time I went back to Mentor, that was my goal, was to try to get the girls who were stuck, because I remember being stuck so many times there, but I tried to focus on the girls who were stuck and kind of just tell them, like, there is life beyond Ironwood. And if you can try your hardest to kind of get through this moment, you'll be on the other side of it eventually. And, like, you know, I see you. I hear you. It is disheartening to just hear... So a lot of the stories of abuse from staff members like that I that have been coming out through me doing this podcast um, just because a lot of the res you know a lot of the staff that a lot of residents are like oh I really liked them they they they, they really helped me get through my program like you know and then there's like two or three other residents saying this this human abused me this staff abused me and like sometimes I feel like I'm crazy for even like you know remembering it the individual that's that's what it is that's called gaslighting in the psychological community gaslighting is when an individual pretends something didn't happen that a victim claims did so i'll be like well you know he made me do this or that they'll gaslight him they'll be like that's ridiculous i never said that you know look at me um i'm i'm a well-respected member of staff here this is a troubled team are you gonna listen to what she has to say or are you gonna listen to me Yep. It's called gaslighting, and it's one of the most fucking immoral, sickening tactics I've, I can ever see anybody stoop to. Yep. I feel like Ironwood really did gaslight the shit out of a lot of us. And I'm actually struggling today as an adult um, not doing that to other people. Like, there's times where I'm like, no, my behavior was normal. Like, why don't you understand that? Like, when it's not normal, I'm being triggered by something that did happen when I was at Ironwood, and I'm responding the same way I would if I was at Ironwood because it is a very high-stress, very punishing situation. So there's a lot of times I'll catch myself as an adult now, and um, I'll feel like I'm, I'm gaslighting someone else because they're like, whoa, why is your response so aggressive to something that's so minor? And I'm like, no, why are you, you know, responding to my response like that? Ah, I'm the yeah. normal one, not you. <laughs> like, it's so triggering and weird to kind of like unscramble that and unlearn that behavior because I will spend the next couple of months or years of my life trying to unlearn what Ironwood created uh, me to be at this point. See, I, I, I became an entirely different person in Ironwood, a shell of a person. Literally, a ro- an, an automaton going through the motions, 
just to please them because I was able to in the my in my mind it was a maelstrom of dissent it was a maelstrom of depression of hatred of anger of anxiety of you know but once I got out I was luckily able to shed that away I was like okay that's gone now but that didn't change the fact that I had to relearn how to be a human being in society that's a that's a that's a process called institutionalization when you've been institutionalized so long you can't just readjust to normal society and I went through about a year and a half where I had no friends no social skills no self-confidence no you know I was literally afraid to talk to people a friend would come up to me and say like hey Tom what's going on and I would be like oh hey like real quiet and like kind of shy away Ironwood has definitely left scars on so many kids um, who now have like more like just warped ideas of what it means to be mindful, to advocate for themselves, to be in relationships that aren't codependent. It's such a mess, oh, a yeah. web of messes yep. that are left behind. Um, but one of my last questions, because we're coming close to the end now. Um, did you have a code, Adam? I saw a couple of code, Adams. And unfortunately, I knew they were never really going to work out. I don't think anyone's you know? code atoms worked out. Even even if one had gotten away with a code atom, which trust me, if there was a legitimate way out of there, like if if, th- if this was a Shawshank situation and there actually was a plan I could have devised to escape from that place and get somewhere where there's, you know, urban communication and everything and get away, I would have. But as far as I saw it, there wasn't you were so far unless unless you were a wilderness survival expert which i mean i was not i grew up in a suburban town you, you code out them all you want you know best case scenario they catch you worst case scenario you freeze to death and depending on your point of view best case scenario you freeze to death worst case scenario they catch you that is a one way to look at it it's one way a lot of kids are looking at it so well thank you so much uh tom for being on our show today uh, and continuing to break code silence with us. It's been a pleasure hearing your stories. Um, yeah, no problem. People, people, people's behaviors define who they are. We should be allowed to express ourselves in our own unique ways. Conformity is acceptable to a certain degree, but when you mute the parts of a person that make that person who they are, you take away their soul, their individuality. Those kids that went through that are now going to feel inferior going into job interviews. They're going to have anxiety interviewing with, you know, new jobs. They're going to have anxiety talking to recruiters. They're going to have anxieties applying for a loan because they're always going to have that feeling of inferiority that they had done something wrong, that they were subservient to these people, that that was the role that they were indoctrinated into. And that is just... Very sad, and it's it's taken me, honestly, years and years of therapy with the right people to finally step over that. And it's, you know, yeah. if there's anything I can ever do to help anybody else reach that, I hope, you know, I hope it can be done. I think I think we all have to realize that healing is a continuous process. It's never ending. We always are going to have to work on ourselves and try to heal from 
you know, these institutions, but we're going to do it and we're going to share these stories and we're going to make sure that parents hear these stories and that moving forward, hopefully we can bring change and an end to a lot of the behavior and a lot of the um, rules that are, you know, in enforced in these programs. So I do, I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart, you sharing your story today and hopefully it can, it can be heard by somebody who will take it to heart. Thank you so much, Tom.